Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets podcast. My guest today is bassist extraordinaire Les Claypool. Les, couple of things we were talking, trying to get the technical stuff under control. You talked about early morning, and it's just about noon. Are you a late-night guy? Uh, I am not a late-night guy. It was more just a reference to uh, uh, dealing with technical issues as uh, the first part of the day and being a lowly bass player. Okay, then another thing, and this is well-known, uh, you referred to as Colonel. What's the derivation of that? Uh, that's, that came about with some of my guys when I started the frog brigade years ago, um, that, uh, you know, I was the Colonel of, of, of the brigade. And I like to joke that it's more K E R N A L as uh, more like as a bit of corn, as opposed to some form of, of military, uh, authority figure. Okay. So the frog brigade is going on the road. You have multiple bands, associations, why the Frog Brigade? Why now? Uh, my manager told me to do it. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's 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 been a while since we've done the Frog Brigade. Uh, there seems to be a, a hunger for for some uh, for some brigade. Um, I've we're re-releasing uh, those old prawn song uh, uh, recordings. So. Uh, it just seemed like the right time. I had a big year with Primus last year, probably the most daunting uh, Primus undertaking in the history of Primus by doing that entire Rush record, which, again, another another uh, another test of the firing of the synapse. Um, so it's 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 just time. It's 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 time to shift gears a little bit. Okay, everybody knows your name, but not everybody is familiar with the ins and outs of your career. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Frog Brigade? Well, so many years ago, well, right around the turn of the century, 
uh, we were having some issues in the Primus world and we weren't necessarily seeing eye to eye on things. And I think we had some burnout and there was some, there was a little bit of fade going on. And we went on a hiatus, which was just another way of saying we're breaking up and we might get back together at some point. <laughs> uh, and I, 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 I did this gig in New Orleans, which ended up being the uh, being Oysterhead, and it sort of launched me into this. It, it, it made it made my uh, presence known in the jam world. So I got a call from an old friend of mine, Michael Bailey, who um, books the Fillmore, and he was booking this festival in uh, in Calaveras County called the Mountain Air Festival, and it's you know famous Calaveras jumping frog, you know, famous from Mark Twain uh, story. And wait, 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 I don't think everybody knows that. So if you remember, go a little bit deeper about the jumping frog and Mark Twain. Oh yeah, the uh, the, the the famous jumping frog of Calaveras County. So I have a history with Calaveras County because I used to play in this band, this old R and B band when I was uh, about nineteen years old. With uh, we would play these basically Hell's Angels events all over Northern California, and one of them was the the frog jumps in Calaveras County, and. Uh, Calaveras County has had these frog jumps for decades, uh, and uh, the bikers used to go to this thing, but they would get harassed, so they started their own, which was like a, a week prior, and, and I used to go play this thing. So anyway, Michael Bailey and uh, BGP at the time had this uh, mountain air Bill festival. Graham presents. Yes, had this mountain air festival, and so because of the Oysterhead uh thing that I had put together in New Orleans, Michael Bailey said, hey, can you put something together for us? So I got Tim Alexander on drums and I had Jack Irons, one of my favorite drummers on uh, on drums as well, two drummers, then um, my buddy Merv on guitar and Garrick on sax. And we were going to call it the Thunder Brigade. And Michael was like, you know, we're bringing the, uh, the Primus guy into the jam world. Something called the Thunder Brigade might be a little heavy handed. So I said, well, let's call it the Frog Brigade because it's the Frog Jumps. And that's how Frog Brigade was born. Okay. So Michael Bailey said to do the gig, tell us about the gig and what the music was like. Um, well, basically, like Oysterhead, there was a, it, it was a lot of just straight up improvisation. So my idea was to get some of my favorite guys together. Tim and Tim Alexander and I hadn't played together in a while because he had left Primus, and this was sort of this was sort of his introduction back into the Primus world. And then Jack Irons was a buddy of mine; he was a neighbor. And Merv is just a guitar player who I just have always adored. And then Skarek is Skarek; he's a champion. He's known in that world very well. And um, we got together, picked a few songs, and then just sort of jammed it out. And it it. it, it that and the Oysterhead thing really opened my eyes to the notion that, hey, people want to see you do all those things that other people have been telling you not to do all these years, which is wiggle your fingers and take chances and dance on the edge. They want to see you fall and, and, and potentially fall gracefully. Um, and I, I just found that fascinating. And it's, it's, it's since become a big part of my philosophy on how to approach music, which is just throw pasta at the walls and see what sticks, you know? Okay. Let's go back to you saying all the stuff you're not supposed to do in falling. You go a little deeper on that. Well, uh, I've always been one of those guys that could waggle my fingers pretty good. And 
I've definitely been in many situations over the years where they're like, you know, that's nice, Les, but can you waggle your fingers? Maybe half as much as you're waggling your fingers. And, you know, and when the, when the, when the job calls for it or the gig calls for it, I, I have no problem doing that. That's what I do. You know, when I play with Tom Waits, I don't waggle my fingers nearly as much as I do in Primus. But something like Primus... Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Let's be very specific because not everybody is as knowledgeable, certainly, as you. When you say waggle your fingers, you're talking about a style of play or being more visually dynamic? Uh, waggle of the fingers, in my world, it, well, in my personal mind, is just another way of saying uh, playing technically. Uh, okay. So... As opposed to, if you're not playing technically, you're doing what? Well, um, as opposed to holding down the root or playing a little more minimalistic. So, okay, does that make sense? Well, I think there's a lot more questions, but let's hold those questions to continue the narrative, how you ended up changing to be in the quote-unquote jam band world. Well, it wasn't so much a change. It was more of there was a there was a side of me that all of a sudden, hey, wait a minute, here's some people that are enjoying music for the musicians. There was no, hey, I got to wear a, a red baseball cap backwards because that's the style now. Or there was no thought of being on radio or MTV or any of this. It was people wanting to see musicians, young and old, just do what they could do to the extent of the of their ability. Um, and take chances musically in front of a large crowd. That's what I got out of it. When we did the oyster head thing, it was it was insane. It was like, we're gonna go up and we've, we've jammed together three times and we're gonna go play these songs that we just wrote and we're gonna just jam. It was like being in high school and setting up in the garage and, and, and but yet in front of thousands of people. And in, in, in the Primus world, you know, we were known for doing some improv, but it was we were within the parameters of our song structure. Whereas doing the Oysterhead thing and then subsequently getting into Frog Brigade world, structure wasn't wasn't such a big deal. You know, the parameters were much looser, or they were interpreted as being much looser. So it's just more free form expression with your instrument. Okay, because I know what Oysterhead is, but not everybody does. Tell us about the formation and the members of Oysterhead. Well, right around that right, uh, right around that time, excuse me, the fellows at Superfly, who used to put on these 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 events down at the jazz festival. This is a New promotion Orleans, company. Yes, down in New Orleans, would do these things called super jams, and my manager was he managed Galactic at the time, so he was. He was in that world. And he said, hey, they want you to put together something for a super jam. I'm like, what the hell is a super jam? Well, you get a hold of some, you, you get some musicians together and you just go and jam in front of a bunch of people. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to call my buddy Trey Anastasio because he's in a band that's kind of known for jamming. And so I called up Trey. I said, hey, they want, us, they want me to do this event. Are you interested in coming and doing this thing? And he said, you know, I've always wanted to do a project with you and Stuart Copeland. And I said, well, I know Stuart. And I think he kind of, I, year, I learned years later that he kind of tossed that out at me as like a, well, I don't really want to do this, but hey, if you can get, you know, Stuart Copeland <laughs> involved, it was, it was, it was, it was kind of a way of gracefully bowing out of this. Little did he know that I actually knew Stuart. 
So then I called Stuart, and Stuart's like, I've been waiting for this phone call for 25 years. He was so excited and ready to do it. And the three of us got together and jammed a little bit, and then we did this show. It was purely by the seat of our pants, and it was it was very foreign for Stuart because he, you know the police was a was a was a pretty scripted unit, and you know he would always talk about his pop sensibilities. And then there's Trey, who's just used to going going for it in front of huge groups of people. And then there was me, kind of dancing in the middle, and it was just a very liberating thing. And um, and and that's what opened my eyes and probably other people's eyes to me in that world. How did you know Trey? <clears throat> I had played with Fish many years ago. I had a band called Sausage, which was some of the original members of Primus. And we opened for Fish at uh, Laguna Seca Days in California. And I always knew of Fish as this, you know, there was this band kind of came up around us and there was, we had some mutual friends and, and there was a couple songs of theirs that we used to listen to every now and again. And, um, but I, to be honest with you, I didn't realize how big they were. And so we did this, you know, I, I just call him, I'm just calling Trey going, hey, you want to do this thing? And uh, little did I know the show was going to sell out in five seconds and it was all, you know, fish heads because I, I had no clue how big they were. So. And how did you know Stuart? Well, we did a record, Primus did, in uh, the late 80s called Antipop. And it was after the Brown album. Um, and the Brown album was our sort of our experimental record where we bought all this old vintage gear and just made this record that <laughs> Tom Waits <clears throat> once told me, it sounds like it needs a good wash, you know, because <laughs> it's a very dirty, dark, it's, a, it's the Brown album, it's the Brown sound. And uh, the record company wasn't real thrilled with that record, <laughs> nor, nor with its performance. So when we came to do our next record, there was a lot of talk of, hey, you know, you guys have always done your own thing and done and gone your own way, but maybe it's time to work with a producer. And we had dabbled around with some producers on a few little projects prior to that and just never found anything that clicked with us. So the notion came up, well, let's work with a bunch of artists we respect, musicians and whatnot, as producers to produce individual songs. So one of the first calls we made was to Stuart because I, you know, I've always, you know, to me, the Rumblefish soundtrack is one of the greatest pieces of music ever recorded. I absolutely adore that. And I love his sensibility. And so here comes Stuart. He was happy as a clam to come up and sit in my beanbag chair and point at us and tell us what to do and throw some of his pop sensibilities at us. So that's how, it, and we just hit it off. He's a great guy. He's one of my best friends now. So okay. has been for a long time. You start off by saying your manager told you to do the frog brigade now you talk about the labels saying, telling you what to do. Your image is of someone who doesn't listen to anybody and does whatever he wants. So where, who are you relative to that? Well, it wasn't like he told me to do the oyster head thing or told me to do, he brought in the options to do this. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. It's a new, new thing. <clears throat> and the record company thing was, you know, well, we can't, there's no producer that we really clicked with. We tried to get Brian Eno, but he wouldn't even talk to us, <laughs> which I think would have been spectacular. Um, but uh, it, it was just kind of our way of doing it our way, if that makes any sense. 
Okay, a couple of questions. Where are you right this second? I'm not talking about literally the street address, but what? where are you relative to California? Uh, I'm in the Sonoma Coastal wine country. Okay. And I'm sitting at my kitchen table, and that is... That's Penelope behind me right there. That's She's a figurehead from a ship. Okay. You know, in the internet era, you could be anywhere. Um, but, and you grew up exactly where? Uh, I grew up in the East Bay of San Francisco Bay Area. So, Pinole, Richmond, El Sobrani. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a little north of Berkeley. And what'd your parents do for a living? I come from a long line of auto mechanics. My father was auto mechanic. My uncles were all mechanics. My stepfather was a mechanic. Um, my grandfather was a mechanic. But I did have one grandfather that was a fireman, and he actually has been immortalized, if you want to call it that, in the song Jerry was a race car driver as Captain Pierce the Fireman. Okay. Lots of auto mechanics. So there are all those auto mechanics. Are you an auto mechanic, at least on an amateur level? Uh my father to this day gets upset with me when I work on my own vehicles because he's worried I'm going to smash up my hands, which is it's just valid. But I tend to do it anyway because I'd rather do it than wait for somebody to come do it. But I work on a lot of it, but not all of it. The guys like to make fun of me because I spend a lot of my time on tour working on my own tour bus. But I enjoy it. Okay, a tour bus is a whole nother, you know, league with diesel engines. How do you know how to work on a tour bus? You know, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all relative. Uh, you know, you got to service the generator. You got. I have a buddy that builds tour bus, big fancy tour coaches for for entertainers, and he said there's two types of tour buses that that uh, break down: old tour buses and new tour buses. They all break down. They all have issues. There's always something going on. And so there tends to be a lot for me to do, but it keeps me busy. Okay. Most people rent their tour buses. Do you rent or do you own a tour bus? Uh, I'm not a very bright individual, so I actually have two tour buses now. Um, and we there's talk of us selling one of them, but my wife refuses to let me sell her name is LaFonda. She was our first bus um, because she has fond memories of LaFonda. So we're now using it at our, at our tasting room for high-end fancy tastings. Okay. Where are the buses right now? Uh, one of them is at the uh, Pachyderm Station in Sebastopol, our, our, our wine tasting facility. And where's the other one? It's at our uh, where we keep our gear and our... Uh, uh, our rehearsal space. So if you have a tour bus, is it like, you know, some mechanical items, they work best if they're used all the time, where someone is not on tour all the time. So like on the tour bus there, the more you drive it, the fewer problems you have, or if you start it up after six months, you know, you got new problems. What's it like? Well, so a, a tour bus is like a, it's like a yacht. There's so many things on it. There's, kitchens and bathrooms and and pneumatic doors and and so there's lots of things to go wrong uh it is true with any mechanical item the more you use it the less apt it is to to uh be unreliable um so 
I do have to exercise these things as often as I can, and I probably don't as much as I should. Okay. Tell me more about the wine tasting operation. Well, we moved up to uh, the Sonoma Coastal Wine Country. It's been like 28 years ago now. And I used to be a fellow that smoked quite a lot of the marijuana bush. And um, where we live, there's... It's like living in Hollywood. If you live in Hollywood and you have a barbecue, who comes to your barbecue? There are grips. There's, 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 you know, lighting people. There's people within the industry tend to show up your barbecues. Well, here you have a barbecue. It's a lot of coopers, a lot of vineyard managers, people in the wine industry. So while this wonderful wine, Pinot Noir, you say Noir, um, was floating around. And at the time I was trying to not smoke so much of the marijuana bush because I felt like it was adversely affecting my memory. And I wanted to remember what my children were like when they were little and I needed a new vice. So I started drinking all this local Pinot and then a couple friends of mine one day said, Hey, we should make our own Pinot. It'll be cheaper than buying it, which was the stupidest thing I've ever said in my entire life. Cause it's a very costly endeavor, but it's become a wonderful thing for us on a social level because my wife runs it. We have, it's just, it's kind of like our clubhouse. We just go and hang out and drink this wine. We have a 20 foot fiberglass wiener that we serve these gourmet hot dogs out of. And the people that work for us are all amazing friends. So it's, we just kind of fell into it. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. 
Give me some sea life. Give me museums. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Okay, it's not only expensive, it usually takes a, a bit of time to get right. So how long you been doing it for? Uh, we've been doing it since 2007. But we're very, very fortunate because at one point, actually it was 2010, we were, we were on the hunt for a, a, a new winemaker. And we're little guys. We're like 1,000 cases. So, but I was surprised. All these winemakers came out of the woodworks to make our wine. And I would ask them, who, so who do you admire? Who do you respect as a contemporary Pinot uh, maker? And they all would say, oh, Ross Cobb, Ross Cobb, Ross Cobb, Ross Cobb. So pretty soon I get a phone call from Ross Cobb. He's like, hey, Les, uh, I met you with John Cordy and the Vinyl Guys, and I grew up with such and such. We had similar friends, and he's a bass player. So boom, we got we got Ross Cobb as our winemaker, and he's been our winemaker for like 12 years now. So, And he's a very good friend. And he's a pretty good bass player. Okay, but he's winemaker exclusive to you, or he all works on multiple vineyards? He does his own label, Cobb, and he... Does, I think he does a couple other labels as well, but um, uh, he's mainly us and him. What does it take to make a good wine? Uh, a good winemaker helps, uh, but the main thing is sourcing good fruit. And where we live just happens to be the mecca of California, Pinot Noir. So um, we get a lot of good fruit and uh, Ross knows what to do with it. You know, it's funny, I always say, that, you know, I'm in a band with Stuart Copeland, which is an unbelievable thing to me when I really think about it, even though he's a good buddy and it seems natural now. But it's a similar thing with Ross making our wine. He's like the Stuart Copeland of winemakers. He's just that guy that has, he has a, an approach and a thumbprint. It's, I, I find making wine is very similar to making records. There's a lot of variables within those elements that make, that create that thumbprint if you're looking to create a thumbprint. Okay, so is this a public operation? Can people drive there, sample, et cetera? Oh, yeah. So people listening who might be in the area, give us a couple of names or whatever, how they can find your place. Uh, it's just Purple Pachyderm is the name of the wine, and the name of the uh, tasting room is Pachyderm Station. And look for the giant fiberglass wiener. <laughs> So at the end of the day, is this operation in the red or in the black? Uh, it's let's just say it's kind of what, what's, what's the combination of red and black? I would say pink, but that's more white and black. Uh, it's kind of it just floats itself, basically. You know, there's an old saying: if you want to make uh, if you want to make a million dollars in the wine industry, start with five million and whittle it down. You know, so it's a lifestyle thing for us. And how many people work there? Uh, what do we have? We have six or seven folks working for us. Okay. And you mentioned your wife. She doesn't want to get rid of the other tour bus. How'd you meet your wife? Um, I've known my, we've been together over 30 years. Um, I met her in Berkeley. Her sisters were going to school in Berkeley and she eventually went to Cal Berkeley and I lived in Berkeley. I, I hung out around Cal, but We've just been together for many, many years, and uh, we we met. I met her through her sisters. It's been a long time. And how many kids do you have? 
Uh, I have two kids that are now in their mid-20s. And what are they up to? Uh, my son graduated from LCAD with a degree in game design, but now he's, he's a fledgling filmmaker. In fact, he's working on the Primus documentary right now. Um, and my daughter has a sort of a vintage boutique hipst hip I wouldn't say hipster, but hip clothes clothing store in Petaluma called Buck Lucky. That's actually doing, she's having a good time with. So they're both kind of still on the payroll. They're on their, well, Lena's not. Lena's, she's, she's, her business is, is, is clicking right along. So she's doing her own thing. Cage, he, he's, he's done a few things on his own. He, he, he just did, uh, him and Jimmy Hayward animated that, um, that infamous, uh, Jim Carrey cartoon that he posted to leave, uh, what did he leave? Twitter with it or Instagram? I can't even remember. But, uh, my son was, was the animator on that. Um, and he's got a few things of his own going, and he's, and he's doing the Primus documentary. So your father's a mechanic, comes from a long line of mechanic. Your mother, homemaker, or does she work outside the home? Uh, my mother left the planet uh, several years ago, um, but she, she worked as for many years as a, uh, uh, she ran a, a pediatrician's office. So she was like the, the front desk lady or whatever you call it. So, how many kids in the family? In my family? My, yes. I have two children. Are you talking no, no, about- No, 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 no. When you're growing siblings? up, brothers and sisters. Uh, I have a stepbrother and stepsister and a half-brother and half-sister. And how many grew up in the house with you? Well, when I was living with my mom, I was myself and my- little brother and little sister and they were quite a bit younger than me and then when i moved to my father's when i became high school age i was living with my stepbrother and stepsister that were closer to my age do you have any brothers or sisters who share the same father and mother as you uh different fathers same mother okay so what's it like growing up shuttling between these two places and really being the only person in your own little league there. Well, I, you know, I was a child of the seventies and I think it was fairly common. You know, I, I, most of my friends were shuffling off every other weekend to see their, their, uh, the parent they weren't living full time with. Uh, so it seemed pretty, pretty commonplace. You know, there were pros and cons. The pro is you got two Christmases. You know, that was pretty, that was pretty sweet. The con was, you know, I, I had to divide my time, but it worked out for me. I, I went and moved in with my father when I was 13, which was a, which was a great thing for me because that's where I got exposed to a more musical community and just got to kind of go reinvent myself. Um, and where I had been living, my cousin who I spent every day with till I was 13 years old, he ended up spending the majority of his life in prison. So <laughs> <laughs> it was good that I moved on from that world. What was he, what were his crimes? Well, uh, addiction was a big thing in my family, whether it's alcohol or methamphetamine. So he, he went down the, 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 the crank trail as we would have said, and just it, it, it consumed him and he, 
he spent a lot of time behind bars. So you're growing up, what kind of kid are you? Popular, outcast, good student, bad student? <clears throat> I think I was somewhere in the middle. I think moving to my father's was a chance for me to kind of reinvent myself and show up and be, you know, move from group to group until I found who I was comfortable with. Um, I did, I was the, I was the kid in my family that was, would have been the first one to go to college or the first male to go to college because I had good grades and whatnot. But I, I had to work because I had no money. I had to work and I wanted to play music. I couldn't work and play music and go to college. I just wouldn't have been able to pull it off. So I tried it for a semester. It didn't work out. And then I opted to, to work and play music. And that's, and here I am now talking to you. You got a wild sense of humor. Where does that come from? Um, I'm going to say my grandfather who has, who actually has a, a, a whamola wiener named after him, Papa Simone at our, at our, at our hot dog joint. Uh, our family tended tended to deal with heavy issues with humor. You know, it was always deflected with humor. That's just always the way we did things. So, um, he was a very humorous fellow. Okay, and you pick up the bass when and why? So, when I I had uh, Mr. Kelly's algebra class in ninth grade. And there was a fellow who sat behind me who wore these big, thick pop bottle glasses, had this long hair, and he wore these, these white T-shirts, this kind of little Filipino guy. And he would sit back there and look at uh, guitar magazines and roll up dime bags. <laughs> and I remember him showing, he would show me these magazines. Hey, Claypool, man, look at that. That's, that's the one I'm getting right there. And he'd show me pictures of the Stratocaster. And I remember the ad, specifically the Stratocaster, the guy holding it going, it's a country machine. And somebody over his shoulder going, it's a rock machine. And somebody else going, it's a blues machine. He's like, that's the guitar I'm getting. That's what I'm getting. And that guy happened to be Kirk Hammett. <laughs> and uh, and he he... He wanted me to sing for his band because I would always come in singing like Aerosmith songs and, uh, you know, uh, Zeppelin and whatnot. And he was like, hey, Pooh, I want you to I want you to sing for my band, man. Why don't you sing for my band? And he gave me some tapes. He turned me on to Hendrix. He gave me some. Uh, I he wanted me to sing uh, Cream, Sunshine of Your Love. That was going to be my audition song. And I took the tapes and I listened to him. But I was too scared. I couldn't I couldn't do it. I was like, ah, dude, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. But it gave me the itch to do something, and I met this other guy that needed a that that you know bass players were in big demand because everybody wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. Nobody wanted to play bass. They always stuck the bass at the guy who couldn't play couldn't play guitar as well as the other guy. You know, so he needed a bass player. I knew this guy that was selling a bass for I think fifteen bucks or something. I I was thirty bucks. I had fifteen bucks. And I went to my dad. I said, Dad. Jim Ledbetter's got a got this bass he wants to sell us $30. I got 15. Can you loan me 15? He's like, is this something you really want to do? And I was like, yeah, it's really what I want to do. All right, well, let's do this right. We're going to go see Al's. We went to Al's Music, um, local little local music store in town. And we bought a Fender. Uh, it was a Memphis P-Bass copy of a Fender Precision. $150. My dad loaned me the rest of the money. And I worked all summer pulling weeds and schlepping well one thing we know about a bass guitar is you need an amp so what about an amp well i was screwed there 
<laughs> I didn't I didn't get my own app until I was like well into my 20s. Uh, I actually would the guitar player in this band that I ended up joining in high school, uh, he had this little Gibson guitar amp and I would play through this little Gibson guitar. And the funny thing is I, I used to schlep that damn amp back and forth from my house because my house was like maybe half a mile from school and I would carry that damn thing and I only weighed like 90 pounds. I'm carrying this damn thing. It had a 12-inch speaker. And now those amps are worth a fortune. They're actually worth quite a bit of money. I look them up. and um, But that's what I would play through. And you couldn't hear me at all. You could barely hear me. I was, you know, it was like most bass players in rock bands. I was just part of the landscape more than anything. But rumor was in my day that if you played a bass through a regular guitar amp, you're going to blow it up. Oh, yeah. I blew up some amps. But these were tiny. I mean, this is a tiny amp, you know, so it didn't it didn't get loud enough to do much of anything, you know. Okay, so you come on with a P bass copy. You got yes. it. How yes. do you learn how to play it? Uh, well, because I didn't have an amp, I would sit there much to the chagrin of my stepbrother and stepsister as they're watching their cartoons. I would sit on the edge of the couch and just play along and I, a lot of times I would put on like rush records and stuff and just play along I couldn't hear what I was doing so I had no idea if I was in the right key or anything but I could rhythmically follow along and that's kind of how I started was interpreting these songs without hearing the notation but just rhythmically following along and then how did you ultimately learn the right notes in the right key I never did the uh, you know, we just did this, like I said, we just did this Rush album. And part of the impetus of us doing the Rush album is it was always something that the three of us connected. When we first got together, me and Lur and Herb, we saw this guy with this giant drum kit. We thought, well, man, he must know some Rush. And we'd play little bits and pieces of Rush riffs that we knew from, but we never knew full songs, you know, just bits and pieces. So with Farewell to Kings, we had to learn the in entire thing. So I was never one of those guys that would sit and learn other people's songs. And I think a lot of it came from, I just didn't have the, the, the equipment to do so. So when you're talking to Kirk, you said, you know, you're talking, you said, well, you're running around singing Aerosmith songs, et cetera. So prior to this turning point, what was your exposure to music and what were you in to? Well, I don't know how you were growing up, but there was always the kid in the neighborhood whose house you hung out at because they had the best stereo, they had a pool table maybe, they had a doughboy swimming pool, you know, and Jeff Webster was that guy. And so Jeff Webster and his older brother, Tom, they each had their own stereo, plus their parents had a badass stereo, plus they had a pool table, plus they had BB guns, plus they had a doughboy swimming pool, and it was that's where we would hang out all the time. And I, you know, I had, I really had no money. I had like, a couple records but these guys had tons of records so they were always playing music and i was exposed to all this music especially when there's an older brother involved i remember being in in i think we were shooting pool one day and i hear this it's coming blaring out of his bedroom i'm like what the hell is that it was the greatest sound i'd ever heard in my life and jeff goes oh that's led zeppelin i go wow that guy's amazing and it was heartbreaker and it was, it just, it just, it just stuck to me. It was, it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. So I went and got Led Zeppelin 2 and I put it on my crappy little 
<laughs> a little plastic turntable with a couple speakers and and that was that was part of the intro but the the thing and and like i said i don't i don't know your demographic or your age or where you know where you grew up but a big thing that that for us back in the day was those damn record clubs you know you could join the rca record club there was columbia record club where you could get x amount of records for a dollar or there was rca record club where you could get not quite as many records but it was only a penny so i went for the penny one because you know i had no money and i got you know band of gypsies and i got all the world's a stage and i got montrose jump on it and i got i remember getting these records going this is the greatest thing in the world but that's how we got turned on besides friends but how we accumulated our our record collection was through these these clubs and then of course they'd send you a record every month and you had to get it back to them by a certain date or they'd charge you for it well the other thing is the scam was they charge you full retail price so if the album was four dollars in a discount store it was 6.98 to the person in the club yeah but when you're you're 13 you just don't think that way you're thinking you know it's like it's like buying the six foot frankenstein in the back of the comic book for a dollar you think you're going to get this and it's a poster you know it's, it's like a black and white poster you don't think of that and my dad was always if it seems too good to be true then it is too good to be true yeah right dad you don't know what you're talking about i'm getting six records for a penny you know <laughs> just uh you know dot and i back there at doughboy was a high level above ground pool probably the best brand but did you also listen to the radio uh, I mean, my mom always had the AM radio going when we were kids. You know, I remember her scooting across the floor, doing her whatever type of aerobicizing or whatever you called it back then with her beehive hair to like Diana Ross and whatnot. But um, yeah, I mean, I remember when FM radio became a big deal for us. You know, you'd listen, you'd hear some song. I remember hearing, um, you know, waiting to hear what like... Uh, what the next sound was going to be. And I remember one day hearing this song and I was like, Oh my God, that's the greatest song I've ever heard. And they didn't say who it was. So I kept listening and this was the camel. I don't know if you know camel. Yeah. K M E L San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm waiting to hear this song again. What the hell song was it? What the hell song? And it, and it took months and finally I hear it again. It was the man on the silver mountain by rainbow. And I, was like, <laughs> I was just like, Oh my God. And it, and next thing you know, I went out, I went down the rainbow trail. Okay. So just to be clear, you're born in 63. Led Zeppelin II came out in the fall of 69. How many years behind that were you into it? And when did you kind of think in time such that you were listening to the stuff that was out right then? Um, well, I mean... I got into Zeppelin, it would have been in the mid to late 70s. That's when I sort of became aware of such things. Uh, prior to that, it was Beatles. And I, I used to buy 45s. That was the big thing is, is if I got an A on my report card, I'd get a dollar. And so I would take that dollar and go buy a 45. So needless to say, I didn't have a lot of 45s because I didn't get a lot of A's on my, my report cards. But I remember one of the first ones I bought was, you know, Stevie Wonder, Superstition, and then uh, Amos Moses by Jerry Reed, and uh, and then when we got into albums, that was like a whole that was a whole new ball game. But I think the first album I ever bought was uh, 
what is it los los chicones i can't remember the cheech and chong record you know we were we had a big cheech and chong phase which <laughs> would be, was, which my, what once my father heard it he took it away from me what was the routine on that particular album uh well there was quite a few that was the one where they go to the you know their uh, uh they go to the the drive-in you know uh, they go to the drive-in and sneak the guy in in the trunk and they can't get him out and he's pissing on the trunk you know <laughs> yeah yeah Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too shop blinds.com right now and save 40 site-wide get 40 off for a limited time at blinds.com blinds.com rules and restrictions may apply okay so you get the bass how long after that are you playing with the band immediately i was immediately in a band because I had befriended the the local guitar player who was like he was like the guy he was the hotshot guy, and he's he had this he had started this band called Blind Illusion, 
and they needed a bass player and I was immediately in the band and I didn't know how to play anything because it was all original material. I couldn't play anybody else's music but his. I only knew how to play his songs. So that's how I learned was learning to play him showing me how to play his songs. Um, it wasn't until I started branching off on my own and listening to, you know, a lot of, a lot of funk back then that I started getting into being a little more aggressive with how I attacked my instrument. Okay. You know, I can understand the regular guitar. I cannot understand the bass. And just, you know, there are many different levels. What notes to play, whether you're, you know, Paul McCartney playing uh, melody on the bass, other people, Bill Wyman just holding down the bass. What's the trick, or is it something you're either born with or not? Um, I don't know if there's a trick to it, but I do. It is funny seeing people that, I have a friend that's a great guitar player, but when he gets on the bass, it's just a mess. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Um, so, but to me, it's just, it's four strings versus six string. I mean, I have six string basses too. So I, to me, the bass itself is, for me, it's kind of transcended what it is theoretically supposed to be. It's, it just happens to be the crayon that I picked out of the box. I'm still painting the same pictures I probably would have painted with whatever instrument, but, um, but so back then, though, it was, you know, I was just learning and getting my way around and I'm holding down the root. You're playing the root of the chord, you know. Um, but once I started seeing guys like Lewis Johnson and Larry Graham and Stanley Clark tear into that thing, it, it just changed my whole perspective on, on how to approach the instrument. Okay. You know, how do you figure what notes to play on a fretless bass? I mean, it's the, it's the same principle. It's just you're 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 you have a, a you're able to loosely interpret interpret the note. You know, I mean, you could still get warbliness out of a fretted instrument by using vibrato and whatnot. But with the fretless, you can slide in and out of the note, and and um, it's it's a little more uh, liquid sounding, I would say. But it's the same thing. You kind of got to know where you're going. Okay. So you form this band, you're probably playing in somebody's living room or garage. Do you play any gigs live? Uh, our first gig, well, the, first, the very first gig I played, and it's actually in the high school yearbook for that year, um, and Kirk, Kirk still remembers being in the audience, was in the cafeteria of De Anza High School, and I was so petrified that I stood sideways. I couldn't face the crowd. I stood sideways the entire time with my bell-bottom cords on in my platform shoes and and you know and there we were kirk wanted you to sing so in this new band were you singing at all no i i still barely sing the um i i just i i didn't finish puberty till i was like 29 so my voice was cracking all over the place i i would have been awful <laughs> plus i i just oh. didn't have I okay, didn't okay. The- <laughs> I got to go back to that joke. You didn't finish puberty until you were 29. What are you actually saying there? It took me forever. I could grow in a mustache. It took me forever to be able to grow a mustache. My dad always had a mustache. Like, I want a mustache. It, I I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm joking a bit, but I was well into my 20s before I was able to grow a mustache. Um, what about your history with girls back then? I had some girls. <laughs> okay, so on that level... <laughs> Purity worked. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. Uh, okay. No. So by time I, I went, I went from I went from like like I, I went from like five foot tall in ninth grade over the summer to six foot one. So I was like went from little skinny guy to tall skinny guy within a matter of months. And how did that change your life? Um, I'm sure it changed my life in many, many ways, but um, I was definitely one of those late bloomer guys that was, you know, I remember my <laughs> my first, you know, going into the locker room at in junior high and I'm, you know, there's a little less sitting down and I look over and I can't remember the guy's name, but he's he went through puberty and he had this big giant bush with this big donger hanging out and I'm bald as an acorn sitting there going what the hell is going on here and i you know it's 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 uh it's intimidating when you're the only guy in 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 uh, by the time you get to ninth grade you're counting your pubes just waiting to when you can catch up with everybody else so so the height was just just a portion of 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 building my self-esteem <laughs> okay your name is leslie short less I know a number of people from my father's generation with the name Les Leslie, but it's not common amongst people your age. Was that an issue growing up? People give you shit for your name, happy with your name? Uh, well, so I have mentioned Papa Simone as the guy with the humor and the and uh, who we've named the, a wiener after at the at the tasting room. Um, he left the planet several years ago, but. Uh, my parents were very young. My mom was 17 when I was born. My dad was 19. And her mom was 16 or 17 when she was born. So my grandparents were very young. My grandfather was 34 years old when I when I showed up. And needless to say, he was pretty pissed off that his 16-year-old daughter had got knocked up by this guy with grease back hair and a cigarette pack rolled up in his in his t-shirt sleeve, you know. So to gain favor with with and that's why we called him Papa. He didn't want to be called Grandpa. So to gain favor with Papa, they named him. They named me after him. He was Leslie Edward Simone. I was. I'm Leslie Edward Claypool. As a kid, the name Leslie. Ah, it's a girl's name. That's a girl. I heard it all the time. But it was like, eh, whatever. It, it could have been worse. And um, my father's name is Lynn. And so he kind of grew up with a similar thing. He had a he had a uh, girl's name, as as kids would say. But I, I, I have no issue with it now. I was one of those guys, because I wasn't big, I just tried to be funny. You know, there's that old Richard Pryor joke about when he went to prison, he made the guys laugh so he, they wouldn't get the bootay. You know, I made guys laugh so I wouldn't get beat up. You know, it was like, hey, there's less. Ah, he's a funny guy, you know. So it kept, the, it, kept the, it kept most of the bullies at bay. But there's always some bully that just wants to be a dick. And then were you always less or were you ever Leslie? I was Leslie when I was little. But then I, I became, became less. There was a lot of nicknames slung around, too. We always had nicknames, all of our buddies. Right. And was your name less or did you have another nickname? I've had many nicknames over the years. So, uh, But less has been what people call me. Well, it's a very interesting thing because people don't have nicknames anymore. I mean, I'm really? a little bit older. Oh, I'm a little bit older than you. All the baseball players had nicknames. No, and there was no such thing as David. David was always Dave and all this other stuff. You know, I'm Rob. I was never Robert. I was always Bob. 
but whatever. So by time you graduate from high school, what's the status of your musical career? Um, I was really into, um, a lot of funk and what was called fusion at the time. Um, like Stanley Clark, Clark Duke project, Ronnie laws, Dixie dregs, things like that. Probably um, as far out as weather report and, uh, Mahavishnu orchestra or not. A, a little bit, not as much. I tended to like the things it had to be funky or I just wasn't that into it, you know? And, um, I, I never really went deep into the Jocko world because I was a Stanley Clark guy. You know, I, I wanted to see that, you know, I wanted Larry Graham, you know, Larry Graham just blew my mind. But, um, as I was graduating high school, that was when I, you know, I was a huge rush head throughout all of it. That was, they were my guys, you know, until I. Started. Okay. Wait, wait, a couple of questions here. Why is funk centered in the Bay area? You talk about Graham central station, et cetera. It's a hotbed of funk. You have any ideas there? Well, I mean, there's also, I mean, there's Minneapolis funk, there's Cincinnati funk, you know, I was talking to Bootsy a while back and I was like, Hey Bootsy. So who's, who's, who is the funkiest of all time? And he was like, Ohio players, man, Ohio players. They were, they were the funkiest by far. And so it just sort of depends on what kind of funk it's, 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 uh, regional, you know, like you listen to Minneapolis funk, it's got a different feel to it than like New Orleans funk. So, um, but yes, Larry Graham and Sly Stone coming out of the Bay area. That was pretty sweet. Okay. So what's the status of funk today in the world of music? Oh shit. I don't know. I'm an old guy. What the hell do I know? Um, I, I, I have no idea, to be honest with you. I really don't. Well, it certainly isn't dominant, but everything, you know, the whole landscape has changed. But going back to, okay, how did you get into Rush? Well, that was my first concert. So I remember my buddy, uh, Jeff Webster, who was the guy who had all the records and he had the fancy stereo and the Doughboy swimming pool. We'd pick out things to listen to by the cover. You look at the cover. Oh, we got to listen to this. This has got to be amazing. And so one day I picked up the cover and there's this guy sitting there in a chair with all this rubble behind him. And it was Rush Farewell the Kings. We put it on. It's like, oh, my God. So um, I got turned on to Rush. And then when I became a when I was talking about picking up the bass, it was Getty was the guy. And um, we got tickets to, well, a bunch of friends of mine got tickets to go see the hemispheres show at the cow palace and i didn't have a ticket but i had some money and i hopped in the car with these guys and dan maloney he was the older brother of of these two twins joe and mike maloney that i knew and he was like the guy that would buy us beer he was old enough to get us beer and whatnot and he drove drove us all to the cow palace to see hemispheres and we bought some he bought some low umbrella on the way there but he would buy it from Nick's Delicatessen, which never kept the beer quite cold enough because it had an open top. <laughs> so it was kind of warm, low and brow. So I drank three low and brows in my, you know, 90 pound body and, you know, got there and threw up in the parking lot and bought a scalp ticket, even though the show wasn't sold out. And just watched this show that completely, totally blew my mind and changed my life. It was Pat Travers opening for Rush on the Hemispheres tour. So I got to see mars on bass which was amazing got to see tommy aldridge do this incredible solo and do you know play with his bare hands and then rush just 
and watching the Cygnus, the Rosinante going through the black hole, my, my little 14-year-old mind was just percolating. So that was my intro into Rush. Well, I think Rush started on Mercury, then went to Atlantic. If you go to a Rush show, I saw the second to last tour. There are very few women in the audience. I mean, if you meet these guys, of course, one is dead now. Very nice guys from Canada. Explain the magic and why it's such a male thing. You know, I think it's a lot like it's a lot like being a Trekkie. You know, it's like it's one of those. It's, it's kind of a guilty pleasure. Very devout, devoted group of individuals. Um, somewhat obsessive. Um, you know, they weren't writing songs about partying and chicks and all this stuff. They were writing about you know black holes and 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 ships named Rosinante and battling evil forces and dungeons and dragons and all this cool mythological stuff that was that was enticing for guys that maybe the red sci-fi or, or or were trekkies uh but and then the musicality was just insane i i it would blow my mind when people go ah, i don't like rush i was like what what <laughs> why what are you talking about you know some people were rubbed a little bit the wrong way by getty's voice but eh, you know it's like john lyden you know i john lyden is one of my favorite singers of all time you know some people don't like the sound of john's voice but there's a character to it that's unbelievable fits the tone fits the aesthetic of what they're doing and how do you feel as a rush fanatic that uh they've hung it up do you think they should get another drummer go on the road well we just played with them recently um you know i keep pretty good contact with getty um i i really don't know that's kind of their thing um it's that's a tough one you know that's that's a that's a a, a kinship and a, a and being in a band it's 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 like a it's a it's a marriage it's there's all the same emotions there's all the same drama and pleasure and you know there's you know besides rolling around under the sheets but the it's a it's a very it's a, it's a very tight bond and um so it's not for me to say what they should do to be honest with you but uh it would be an it would be an interesting thing to see for sure and i have seen them i mean they played with us so i've seen them play without without neil but i mean it's like the police without Stuart copeland it just doesn't seem to it just it would be it would well, be the odd. difference is is that Sting goes on the road, whereas uh, Lifeson and Getty appear to be retired. I know Alex has a he has a new project that he's doing with some friends. I've heard it, and it's 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 cool. Um, I think like anything, you 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 move through your life, and you you reflect what's interesting to you at that particular time, and if they become nostalgic about it or 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 what have you i they'll go and do it i would think but i, I i'm not sure if right now they're 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 feeling okay that. just staying with that nostalgic point even you too is playing complete albums now you're a guy who's constantly evolving how do you feel about nostalgia i mean i love nostalgia but there's also a part of me that that's i have a little bit of I, I love nostalgia as a as a fan, you know. I I love it. It's 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 a it's an amazing wonderful thing. Um, as a musician, 
a creative person, I like to keep moving forward. It's hard for me, like we're trying to do all these live records, these Primus live records. It's hard for me to listen to them because I'm like, eh, you know, I'll listen to them and I, it's fun, but I'd rather hear some new stuff. I'd rather keep moving forward. But as a fan, and I know I speak for a lot of fans, people come to your shows. They want to see, they want to, they want to see, they want to see those songs that made them feel like they did when they were in 1998 and they were hanging out you know, wakeboarding on some lake or whatever, whatever, whatever they can associate it with good times, bad times, whatever it is. Music is the, it's like a smell. It brings you back to a certain time in your life. And hopefully those are good times. Um, and, 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 and so I, I think as a fan, you want to see that, but I do. I also like the Miles Davis theory, which was, he just wanted to keep going forward. He never want to play anything. He didn't want to go back and play that stuff, you know? To what degree do you personally feel a responsibility to your audience? Well, when I'm in Primus mode, I feel that responsibility. And we go out and we play, we play a, a, a smattering of the, we don't have hits, but there's those ones that people recognize. But I also know that people really dig it when we dig deep into something that we played twice back in 96 or whatever, you know, people like that. It's that's part of the deep fandom and I think that's what we that that's what we cater to because that's part of ourselves. But I've always said since the get go, as a selfish person, I like to go out and play what I want to play because I feel like if I'm enjoying what I'm doing, that will translate. Whereas if I'm going, I I, I won't name any names, but I I've met some musicians that have had some big ass hit, and it's not necessarily it's kind of like a poppy ballady thing and they go oh my god we got to play that damn song again I, I wish we could just be like you guys and just go play all this crazy shit you know so i'm kind of glad we're not tethered by something like that because we've never really had that big hit you know um but i also like counterbalancing that by going out and doing like my bastard jazz project where we just show up and just start jamming and it's unbelievable it's so much fun and so i get to scratch that itch do you feel that you have a large enough dedicated fan base that they'll follow you with whatever you want to do? Or you ever do something and say, well, shit, maybe people, people aren't going to be interested in this one. I, I just don't think that way. Um, when I did think that way, I got in trouble. Um, and I say that back going back to like the anti-pop era, you know, all of a sudden we had done this record, the Brown album, which we were so proud of and we had taken all these chances and it was super lo-fi and old school and and it it just didn't resonate as well. But then again, it resonated better with other people. You know, Tom Waits once told me that's his favorite Primus record. That means the world to me. Um, but then going in to do anti-pop and hearing the, oh, you guys might want to work with a producer. Hey, maybe you should work with this guy. Hey, maybe uh, bring somebody in to do this. And be second guessing and starting to second guess and starting to think, oh, well, we used to get the radio. We used to get MTV. How do we get that again? And for many years, I couldn't even listen to Antipop because I, I remember that time is just not a very pleasant time. It was a lot of second guessing. It was when we started not really getting along so well. It just kind of sucked. But now as time goes by and, you know, the edges erode off of things and you remember the good times as, as we do with everything in our lives. I can listen to it and go, wow, that's actually kind of cool. I've, sonically, I think it's a great sounding record. But when we came back to it, like when we just did the Conspiranoia thing with Primus, it was 
we do, we when we're not thinking about MTV or which we haven't in a long time or radio or any of that stuff, I think we made better stuff. In the early days, we never thought we were going to I remember having a meeting with our attorney after our it was either our first or second record and we got offered a publishing deal. And it was a considerable amount of money. And he was like, you know, the only way this publishing deal is going to be bad for you is if you sell over 100,000 records. Do you honestly believe you're going to sell over 100,000 <laughs> records? And we're like, yeah, 100,000 records. That's a shitload of records. We never thought we were going to get on radio or MTV or any of that stuff. And we've sold way more than 100,000 records. So, Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, since you keep mentioning him, how do you meet Tom Waits? Well, I was a big Tom Waits fan way back in the day. A friend of mine's mom, she always had this really cool, she was a very good friend. Um, she had amazing taste. She was the one turned me on to The Residence and, and, and all that uh, Snake Finger, all that um, Ralph Records stuff. But she played me some Tom Waits one day. I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And then my buddy Joe Gore played me uh, Rain Dogs when it came out. And I was like, holy shit, this is unbelievable. So I was a big Tom Waits fan. I was turning on 
Lur and everybody onto Tom Waits. At first, I remember playing. I was like, "You got to hear Tom Waits." And Lur thought I said John Waite, which was like like the singer for <laughs> for Candy or something. He's like, "What the hell are you talking about?" But when we went to do our first record with Interscope, we had this song "Tommy the Cat," which we deliberately did not put on the Frizzle Fry record because we wanted it to be on a on whatever our major label release was going to be. Because um, Frizzle Fry, we recorded ourselves. We were originally going to put it out ourselves. But um, so I was talking to Tom Wally, who is our champion at Interscope. And I said, you know, I, I'd love to just get somebody else to be the voice of Tommy the Cat, you know, some interesting character, someone like Tom Waits. He's like, well, why don't we get Tom Waits? I said, what, <laughs> what the hell? You, what do you mean? Is that, you can do that? He's like, yeah, I'll just, you know, we'll get a hold of him. He has mismanagement. So I wrote him this letter. Hey, you know. So we were recording at Fantasy Records and Lur was, I had left, me and Lur had an apartment in Berkeley and I'd gone home for something and left Lur to do his guitar solos. And I get home and I, I click on the the uh, the uh, answering machine. So, hey, hey uh, Les, this is uh, Tom, Tom Waits. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've been listening to this song. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be a wonderful thing because I had said it would be a wonderful thing if you did this. And I called Lur. I'm like, oh my God, Lur, you got to hear this. I put the phone over the, and Tom came down and he did the voice of Tommy the Cat. And he brought his son, Casey, who was four years old at the time. And I've known Casey ever since. But we just kind of kept in touch. And I moved up to the country kind of near where he lived. And and we just have always kept in touch. And I played on a bunch of his records. And I've turned him on to some musicians. And uh, I, I know his family. He's he, him and Kathleen. They're, they're great. They're amazing people. Great people. Good friends. Okay. You talk about Trey, you talk about Tom Waits, you talk about Stuart Copeland. Is that your personality to really make friends with everybody, know everybody? Are you more of a homebody? Are you in contact with people all the time? Those are the only three people I know. Oh, really? <laughs> no. Now you know me. Uh, I don't know. I I've been very fortunate that you know, I've, I've always said this is that um, I've got to meet and befriend a lot of my heroes and pretty much all of them have been really unbelievable. There's, you know, been a couple instances with some some film stars. It's been a little weird and there's been, you know, but for the most part, everybody's been spectacular and, and unbelievable. And um, and they've become my friends and oftentimes collaborators. So I've I've. To me, that's the greatest thing about anything I've done, besides being a father. I'm very proud of my children, my family. Um, but uh, it, when I think about that stuff, you know, like I said, you know, it's like I'm in a band with Stuart Copeland, which that's to me, that's like John Bonham, Stuart Copeland. Those are the, those are the guys. But he's also one of my closest friends. He's a he's like he's. We just chit chat about bullshit. You know, it's, that's an amazing thing to me, you know? Okay. What do I know? If you're a regular musician, as opposed to someone with a name, people are networking all the time for work. So the nature of those people, as I say, a lot of these people are not front people. There are certainly front people who do a lot less networking back then and now. And it's one thing to meet famous people. And I've met a zillion it's another thing to keep up the relationship. There are certain people I've met every time we connect, you know, we have a great time. 
But my identity, my personality is I'm not going to reach out to them. Someone has to keep it, keep hitting the ball back over the net to keep it going. Is That sounds like that's part of your personality. Well, I like that analogy. I like the way you phrased that. I mean, look, first of all, I'm the worst guy when it comes to famous people or people that I respect. Like if I, if, you know, I had an opportunity one time I had a film in this film festival in, in London and, and there was this Beatles film, a Beatles documentary in there too. And George Martin was there and I had an opportunity to say, Hey, you want to meet George? I was like, I cannot meet George Martin. I don't want to meet, I can't meet George Martin because if it wouldn't have been perfect, if he would have been in a bad mood, which we all get in bad moods and we're not always as gracious as maybe we, we should be. It would have, it would have tainted something to me that is one of the most influential, glorious things of of any creativity I've I've that I've absorbed into my into my consciousness. So I just wanted to admire him from afar. I didn't want to meet Santa Claus. I wanted to, you know, I met his son. He was a great guy. I met a couple people who worked for him, but I, I couldn't meet George. Um, and I'm totally fine with that. Um, I've never been that guy that when there's I, there was one time I was doing this conference in. Um, it was a CMJ. I had a CMJ thing, and and Lemmy had just spoke before me, and he was like in this in this in the dressing room, and they were like, "Oh, go on and meet Lemmy." Go on, and I was I was like, "What am I going to say to Lemmy?" And I I'm not that guy that goes up, "Hey, dude, how's it going? I really like your stuff." I'm I'm I've never been good at that. If I meet somebody on a, you know, and it, it, it's meant to, you know, we're getting a sandwich at the table or whatever. I don't know. I'm I'm not good at going up and being that guy. Never have been, and and. and I don't know. Okay. So, I won't so, talk so, so my relationships are based on just like, hey, we all, they're like any other friends you meet that you happen to hit it off with. Okay. Two things. I am not into having pictures taken. I don't need a wall of fame. Two, I've learned I won't talk to anybody unless they know who I am. That's not something, meaning my status is just otherwise it's unfulfilling. They're just shaking your hand in another person out there. You're testifying. But I am not good at keeping the relationship going. So my question is, are you the person, hey, you meet, well, give me your phone number, your email address. Let's keep it going. And then you email them, what's up? No, I'm terrible at that. In fact, my wife is way better at that type of thing. I My social life would be awful if it wasn't for her. You know, I have a, my few fishing buddies and that's kind of, kind of what I do. Uh, but uh it's funny because I have friends that whenever they show up in a town, they get their book out and they go, oh, I'm going to call such and such and such and such. I, I never do any of that. I show up in town. I'm there to do my job. I do my job. If, if, if I see somebody that I know that happened to come to the show, that's a wonderful thing. But I don't, I very, very rarely seek them out. But my wife will because she's good at that stuff. Okay. So you meet Tom Waits, you meet Stuart Copeland. How does it turn into a friendship? Well, I mean- like I said, it's because we bonded over things besides, hey, how you doing? You're Tom Waits. You know, we we bonded over other things. Um, it's like like any other friendship. I mean, how often do you meet somebody at the at the hardware store or at some friend's party and you keep up with them? It's sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. It depends on if you click in, in other ways. Well, I find as you get older, it's like I was listening to a podcast 
And was it Rob Reiner saying, you know, you can't show up in anybody's house anymore. You show up in somebody's house, it's going to blow their mind. You know, are you a criminal, whatever. And it's harder to make new friends. Not as hard in this business, maybe for other people. But you mentioned fishing offhandedly. Are you like a big fisher person? Well, like I said, my father, they're they are all mechanics. We didn't go to on weekends when I go visit my dad, we were either working on some crappy rental property that my grandmother owned or we were out fishing. That's what we did. We didn't go to baseball games, we didn't go to football games. He wasn't a sports guy. We would go fishing with my uncles and even my grandfather. I'd go fishing with my So, it's just one of those things that I grew up with and I very much I I enjoy it. To me, I when I go fishing, I'm not thinking about anything else. It's like people that go golfing. They're just in the game and that's it. So, that's been my thing since since I was a little guy. How often do you go fishing? Do you go to Alaska and Chile to go fishing? Or are you just a guy, you know, doing it occasionally in the same area? Well, uh, I keep a, ba- a boat out in Bodega Bay. So, But they canceled salmon season this year because the counts were low. So it's, it's not going to be as much fishing this year. But um, the bluefin came in last year, which was an amazing thing. I didn't get one, but I went out and chased them around. I have a pond, if I point that way about 200 yards that way we have a pretty good sized pond that there's some bass in it and if i'm inclined i can sneak down there i used to take the kids down there all the time pop some bass and look at them and toss them back in the water it's just to me it's very relaxing okay you talk about the pond how much property do you have uh, we've got about 37 acres here how close is your closest neighbor um couple hundred yards oh okay so you graduate from high school you say you want to do music what's the next step and you say you have a day job what's going on there you say you're a fan of funk and fusion at that time what's the next step well my father always said he was very supportive actually i mean he's the one that got me my first bass and i didn't even find out till years later that he got shit from his his family, like, what the hell are you doing? He's going to become a drug addict and blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, they couldn't understand. And, um, but he always used to tell me, Hey, this music thing's great. He knew that it was keeping me out of trouble. You know, he watched my cousin go, you know, my cousin went up and ended up eventually in jail. And if you don't keep, and I still believe this to this day is anytime a kid shows an interest in anything that gives them some form of focus, it keeps them, they're less apt to get in trouble. And uh, he knew it was going to keep me at, keep me from going and doing just, you know, mundane, stupid shit. So uh, he always told me, he's like, hey, this music thing's great, but learn a trade. Learn a trade. Learn a trade so you have something to fall back on. I have a shitload of trades. I used to bust tires. I used to mix auto paints. I was a shipping receiving guy. I was a bench tech at an audio company. Uh, and eventually I was a carpenter, which I really enjoyed actually. So, um, until we started printing our own t-shirts and that was my last job. But, um, so I had the fortune and misfortune of getting my heart completely destroyed. Um, when I graduated high school, I had a girlfriend, I was going to marry her and she was like the hot girl of the school and she just destroyed me. (laughs) I was a total just wreck. And um, I ended up meeting this guy. Whoa, 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 a little bit slower. How did she destroy you? Just by like dumping me. Well, not really dumping me, but 
she opted to not be with me anymore. And um, okay, wait, wait. Usually, there's a choice. If she's not with less, there's somebody else, or she's moving away, or she's going well, to college. She envisions a better future. No, no, let's let's not. I gotta get too deep, but let's just say everybody wanted to be with this girl, so she had a lot of options. But anyway, okay. The obvious the obvious question is, where is she today? I I have no idea, but um, but uh, she looked like Marie Osmond. Let's just put it that way. You you right. You're not for me, but okay. I understand on. what you're saying. <laughs> no, definitely not. She was a cross between Marie Osmond and Pat Benatar. She had that look. Okay. So there you go. But anyway, I I got my heart broke. So I wanted to get the hell out of my little town of Elsa Branty. My friend Kathy Cuevas, who had turned me on to the residents and Tom Waits and all this stuff, her son was this punk rock dude. And he was always going to shows in Berkeley. I said, hey, man, if you get the tickets, I'll drive. Because I had my 68 Cougar. So next thing you know, I'm hanging out with him in San Francisco. Wait, wait, 68 Cougar is kind of a cool car. How'd you end up with a 68 Cougar? That was my first car. That was my, that was, it was a beautiful car. Well, I told you, we're all auto mechanics. So I bought this 68, my dad bought this 68 Cougar for me, like 1500 bucks, and we fixed it up. So anyway, uh, so we would spend all this time going to Berkeley and San Francisco to go to all these shows. And I eventually moved to Berkeley and to basically get away from the the you know the heartache of this this breakup and it it changed my life for for the better because a there's the 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 level of progressive people in Elsa Brani versus Berkeley it's quite a bit different so i was meeting these people these artists and these different these people from different cultures and going to shows every single night going to comedy shows hanging out at the Berkeley Square and um really got just turned on to a lot of amazing, amazing stuff in a very short period of time. So that's when I started getting into more, uh, you know, abstract music, I guess you'd call it, getting into like early Peter Gabriel and Public Image Limited and and um, the old Ralph Records stuff and Fred Frith and some of the material stuff and just things that were, that my friends and in, in Elsa Brandy would say, what's this weird ass shit you're listening to? So, um, that was kind of, for me, that was, that was a big blossoming for me as an, as a human and as an artist. Okay. You're listening to all that stuff. What about your playing the bass in your professional career? Well, at the time I was playing in this, in this R and B band called the Tommy crank band, which, um, these guys were all way older than me and we play literally play the, the biker bars all you know, Antioch and, and San Pablo. And I play three to five nights a week, four sets a night playing old Booker T and the MGs and, and Sam and Dave and James Brown and the meters, a lot of stuff that I, I didn't even realize what it was until years later, but these guys were all older than me. And it, it was a wonderful experience. That was, that was part of my paycheck. I would do that at night and then have my day gig. And at the, at the time, I was trying to get a band going, and I eventually, in 1984, started this band called Primate. And it, and we we made a demo, and it actually- well, Before you get there, you're playing in the R&B band at night. What is the dream? Because you have to have a dream to sustain you, otherwise life's too hard. Well, my dream was to be a professional musician, but play my own stuff. 
So I was Okay. So you were writing your own stuff. You knew what kind of music you wanted to make then? I had been playing. Look, yeah, I was it, back then there was BAM magazine, Bay Area Music Magazine. Of course. I'd look in the back of BAM, you know, who needs a bass player? And I auditioned for everybody. I there was I, I auditioned for everybody that needed a bass player. And there was just nothing I found exciting. And uh there was a band called the Hoovers that um I remember talking to them. They were a ska band and they were pretty cool, but they didn't want me. <laughs> But other than that, there was there was nothing that I found exciting. So I decided I'm going to start my own thing and I want to combine all these weird elements. And I just made some tapes in my apartment. And then this guitar player called me. He said, hey, I hear I knew him from high school. He's like, I hear you're looking for a guitar player. And I just thought, nah, there's no way this guy. He was, you know, he's 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 from Panole and you know, I'm a Berkeley right. guy now. And he's more conservative and he plays like Tony Iommi and and, you know, uh, I want someone who's like Adrian Ballou or, or Robert Fripp. And he came and played for me, played with me. And he's he's a freak. He's still a freak to this day. He has, we call it Todd time. He has the craziest sense of, 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 of time and melody. And that became the early primate. It was primate. And we made a recording and we got, we're getting airplay on a local radio station uh, called The Quake. And then I find, I get this phone call one day on my answering machine again. Hey, Les, uh, or hey, whoever, to whom it may concern, or whatever it was. Uh, I, my name is such and such. I represent a band called The Primates, and uh, you must cease and desist because uh, we own that name. So we had to change our name, and subsequently we changed it to Primus. Years later, this is like maybe three or four years ago, I meet this guy, and he's like, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm such and such. I was in a band called The Primates. I was like, yeah, your attorney called me and said cease and desist. And he's like, yeah, that was me. I was just bullshitting. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) so. So you make this independent record, continue the narrative. Well, we had made a bunch, we made demo tapes for years before, you know, nothing was happening. We were playing. Nobody knew what to do with us. Michael Bailey, who booked the, the, the Berkeley Square was really the first guy that kind of went, wow, you guys have something going. I'm going to just book you. And he would book us with, you know, we played with the swans, we played with the Popo pies, but we never really fit in with anybody, you know? And then um, all of a sudden along came, you know, Fishbone and the Chili Peppers and Faith No More and bands like that. And all of a sudden there was bands that we could play with, we could open for. And, um, and then the whole scene kind of started in the Bay Area with Limbo Maniacs and Psycho Funkopus and, and Fungo Mungo, these, these bands that we had kind of had a scene in Mr. Bungle, of course. And uh, it just kind of, it kind of blossomed from there. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. 
Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, but you're still working your day job, you're playing some live gigs, you're making tapes in the uh, bedroom. What do you expect to happen and how active are you trying to make that happen? Well, I was very active as far as, you know, we'd, we'd rehearse three or four days a week and we'd go do our gigs. And, you know, one day you'd play for 10 people the next day you play for 20 people and hopefully the next day it's 40 people but then there's you get a little lull period and then you know we were slowly building this thing but uh back then it wasn't like now where you could record an album on your laptop you know i i, I made that little demo of uh, the early days on a fostech but after that we would go into studios so basically me and todd would save up every year we'd save up a thousand dollars and we'd book because you could get a, a real studio for a thousand dollars a day so we would book a studio for one day, 24 hours, and we would start and we'd spend the entire 24 hours. We'd record like three or four songs and record and mix it all in that 24-hour period, which I'm sure just killed the engineers. You know, they, I'm sure they hated it. But we would do that once a year. So it took, you know, it took a handful of years before any of these demo tapes caught on. Because back then there was a there was a whole de- trading of the demo tapes and it was kind of big in the metal world, but I wasn't, we weren't really in the metal world at that point. We were, we were, we were in our own zone. Um, but eventually we made a demo tape that got, that caught on and people were buying it. And it was the sausage demo, um, which is actually to this day is pretty uh, coveted on the internet if you can find it. And then eventually we recorded our, the suck on this record by borrowing some money from my father he loaned us $3,000 so we could print up a thousand records. Okay. You're how old and how many years since the thing begins? So suck on this came out in, I can't remember if it's 88 or 89. And I had started the band in 84. Um, Todd had left the band cause he had a couple kids 
and um, we had our drummer was in a different band, so he was not focused. So I I knew Larry Lalonde from playing with this other band, and I said, "Hey, just come join the band," because he was my buddy more than anything. And uh, and then we auditioned this guy Tim Alexander, who you know he became the guy, and uh, we made that record. They hadn't been in the band. They hadn't been in the band more than a couple months, and we made that record. And Primus was actually pretty popular. We were selling out local clubs, so I was scared to death because all of a sudden both my guys were gone, and I was starting with two new guys. And I was just very fortunate that, because as you know, chemistry is you can't beat chemistry, and you lose a you replace a, 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 a an artist, and oftentimes it throws that chemistry out of whack more often than not. But I got very lucky that the three of us had. A really good chemistry and it, it caught on in a way you know but primus has always been a slow burn there's people go oh when, when did you become famous it's like well am i am i even famous yet you know it's we've always been that under the radar guys you know i've had friends that have these big peaks but they also have the deep valleys we've just kind of always gone you know so okay so you put out the independent album and then uh yeah we recorded it live at the berkeley square and we printed up a thousand copies with three thousand dollars of my dad's money, and we just drove around in my car, Magia, taking them to record stores. And oh, these people took five. Oh, these guys took ten. Oh my God! Ah, and we were selling these things. And our manager had the foresight to send them around to all the college radio stations around the country, and it just caught on. So we made enough money from that record to record our second record, which was Frizzle Fry. We recorded that ourselves, and at that time we were Gavin labels sniffing around us. Rough Trade had gotten involved with the first record and released some of it. And then on the second record, Caroline took took it over. And we did that one record deal with Caroline. And they did a fantastic job. Janet Billy over there was amazing. Um, Keith, I can't remember Keith's last name. Um, but those were the early days when we're out there in the motorhome driving around the country and just you know, it's a, an amazing, amazing, wonderful time. That time of where you're climbing the hill. It's, it's such a wonderful, wonderful feeling, you know. And then how does that turn into a deal with Interscope? Well, it's funny because we were being courted by a few different labels. And um, I had had bad experience with labels and producers in the early days, just watching what had happened with friends. And I remember, I think it was someone from Polygram had gotten a hold of us early on, years be before even our first record. And oh, I've been hearing a lot about you guys and blah blah blah. And you, you ever think of, uh, you ever think of like changing your hairstyles? You ever think of maybe getting a, a lead singer? You know, stuff like that. And it was like, well, no, that's not what we what we want to do. So I was always a little leery, and um, so we were being courted by a couple different labels. I don't remember who, but we did a show at the stone in san francisco and this guy came backstage afterwards and he had gone there to see the opening band who were also friends of ours not even knowing anything about us but saw how the crowd because our crowds would go nuts saw how the crowd reacted he came backstage he said hey my name's tom wally i'm with this new label called interscope and i want to sign you guys right now and my manager's like well you know we talked he was a super nice guy and a very charming guy and my manager was like, well, you know, we, we should really should look at this other deal because it's blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I like this guy. This guy wants to, he had no idea that we'd already sold 80,000 of our own records. He, he just saw something he liked and saw how it was resonating with these people. And he wanted it. 
And at the time, the only release that Interscope had was a fellow by the name of, of Gerardo with Rico Suave. So my manager's going, what the hell? How are we going to sign with this label? Oh my God, they have no track record, blah, 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 blah. We should sign with these other guys. They have a better. And I was like, no, I like Tom Wally. He gets it. And, and it, was, it was one of the best career moves we ever made because Tom was always, he always let us do whatever we wanted for one thing, which was unheard of back then. And he was just supportive and he's a, just a great guy. He's a good human, you know? So it worked out for us. Okay. How did you get a manager and how long did that particular manager last? Well, Dave Lefkowitz was our first real manager. We had a couple guys, like friends, right. like friends that were trying in the early days. But Dave, he worked for David Rubinson in some capacity and had an office in his space. And he was working with some of, there was a big scene in, in the Bay Area called the World Beat scene with the Looters and Big City and Mapenzie. And, and I actually roadied for a lot of those bands. Um, and he was a part of that scene. And he just kind of started taking over stuff for us. And he just- Wait, well, wait, wait, wait. Are you roadying at the same time you're playing with Primates, which turns into Primus? Um, at times, yeah. Back then, sure. Um, the- uh, but anyway, Dave was a big part of that scene. And he just started taking over, doing some bookings for us and this and that and the next thing. And he had a he he's always had a great sense of 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 marketing. He kept up he watched all the trades and all the you know, I didn't watch that shit. And he, he was very instrumental in in getting us uh seen in places where where it was kind of cool to be seen, if that makes sense. And then how long did he last? He was with us for a long time. He he was with us until basically until the mid two thousands, I think. Okay, so you're with Interscope. Interscope very quickly turns into a machine. Uh, how did that work for you? Or were you at arm's length? What were your interactions like with Jimmy? It took a long time for Interscope to become a machine. Interscope was like a clubhouse in the early days. We knew everybody there. They were all our friends. They'd come on the road with us. It was amazing. Um, didn't know Jimmy very well. In fact, I always I thought always thought Jimmy was amazing because the thing about Jimmy is he didn't he didn't bullshit you. He I remember him coming into a, a meeting with us one time, and he sat there and he's like, "Look, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't get Primus. I don't understand Primus. I don't know where one song starts and another one ends." He's like, but you know, Tom Wally gets you and I get Tom Wally. And that was it. Um, to be honest with you, I really wish I would have spent more time like getting to know Jimmy because he 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 was a very interesting cat, but it wasn't it was we weren't one of his bands. Um but uh he did chime in, he chimed in some cool stuff. It was his idea for that look of the um Winona's Big Brown Beaver video. He uh he saw that Duracell commercial. I don't know if you remember that Duracell commercial. He's like, that's Primus. That Primus has got to do something like that. So he said, and I was directing the videos back then. He said, you got to do something like that. And I was thought, well, how can we do this without just ripping off the Duracell thing? So we came up with these toy cowboys and, and did the one on his big brown beaver video. But Inter Interscope, Interscope was, we would have never accomplished what we accomplished if it wasn't for Interscope. They were spectacular to us. Okay, prior to Interscope signing you and graduating from high school, you ever think of giving up? 
Yes. <laughs> I don't know about giving up. I mean, you're a musician because you're compelled to play your instrument. You're a musician whether you're making five bucks or 500 bucks a night. You know, it's just, that's what you do. But there was a time when my dad and everybody were kind of like, okay, you know, I was in my, I guess I was 23 or 24. Hey, this, uh, what's good? When are you going to go to school? This music thing, what, you know? And I went, I, I said, all right. And I went to, went back to school and I did one semester of culinary school. Because I thought, oh, that's creative. That would be fun. And once I got in there, I realized, well, this is ridiculous. A, when you leave culinary school, you start as just a, a, a schlepper. You're making minimum wage. I was already making like 30 bucks an hour as a carpenter. And the hours totally conflict with any musician. You're either a dinner, you're working the dinner shift or you're the breakfast shift. Neither one of those is going to work for me. So I, was, I realized early on that it wasn't going to, that wasn't going to be a good path. Okay. So you end up having pretty quickly big success on Interscope. So what do you think? Um, I don't know. See, the thing is, I've never thought of Primus as we never had big leaps. You know, there was things that, that happened that were interesting that came quickly, like getting on MTV. I remember when we got on 120 Minutes or whatever. I remember even Kirk Hammett going, what the hell? How'd you get on MTV? We're not even on MTV, you know? So uh, those were interesting things. But it's, it's still, Primus is... Primus is, a, is an acquired taste, you know, it's not something for everyone. So it's always been this kind of cultish thing to an extent. Um, even when we had little, our toes dabbled slightly into the mainstream, it didn't last long, you know. It was always about this, 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 this cultish fan base and somewhat obsessive fan base that's kept, that's, that's made it so I could send my kids to college, you know. Okay, so that publishing deal, which if you sold in excess of 100000 it was better for the publishing company. At this late date, do you own those songs? Is that yeah, just we, a license? We've never sold our publishing. I mean, the, the recordings are, you know, those are Interscopes, which is now Universal. Right. Okay. But a lot of if my you, stuff is my stuff, like Prawn Song and all that stuff. I We're about to release all the Prawn Song, like Frog Brigade and... The Claypool stuff. We're about to re-release it because it's it all belongs to me. How did it end with Interscope? Uh and we just kind of amicably just sort of went our separate ways. You know, I remember um Steve Berman got wind in the early two thousands that we were getting back together with Herb. And he said, Jimmy wants to talk to you. So Jimmy had me up into the up into his office and he said, Look. He's like, we want to do this. We want to do a project with you. We want to make it make it right, make it work. We feel like we owe it to Primus. There's a lot of bands that came to Interscope because of Primus. Uh, I've talked to quite a few bands that have said, yeah, we signed with Interscope because you guys were on Interscope because we were known that we got to do what we wanted to do. They left, they left us alone. As long as it was working, they left us alone. So that's when we did The Animals Should Not Try and Act Like People. It was like a DVD EP thing with with Interscope, and um, you know it, it it worked out well. But you know it, it's same at that point they're such a big thing that 
were this odd band. I just don't think it did what any normal Primus thing would do. It wasn't going to become a, you know, Gwen Stefani hit or anything. You know what I mean? It just, it wasn't, it was never in the cards. Um, but I've never had any issues with, with Interscope. It's always been, they've always been. Okay. There's always a parting of the ways. The contract is up or something. And usually the label says, well, you know, it was nice, but we don't want to make any more records. Yeah. I, I don't remember, to be honest with you, I don't even remember that because I was making my own records on prawn song. And to me, that was much more, I liked that because I, I owned them. You know, and I was just licensing them through different distributors. So it was, it was just, it was just better for for me. And then when Primus came back and we did that one thing with, with Interscope, it wasn't part of a big deal. Um, but I am a big fan of of owning. We've owned our own stuff now since the early two thousands. You know, we we released stuff through ATO, but it's all licensing, and I think that's. That's the way to go. That's a wonderful thing, especially now that records are, you know, it used to be that was the cupcake. You know, you make a record and that's where you made your money and you go and do a tour. That was the icing on the cake. And then T-shirts was the sprinkles. Well, now the cupcake is the touring and merch is a big part of that cupcake. And and albums are like they're like business cards now. You know, they're how many people, especially kids, do you know that buy records? They might be paying for Spotify, but they're not buying. They might buy some albums, but even albums, it's just a small, 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 small fraction of what it used to be when you'd release recorded material on a certain format. Okay. At this late date, do you get any recording royalties from Interscope? Um, Yeah. Okay. So you're not upside down. You're not in the red because usually record companies, they cross collateralize all the records, even though you had one successful one, you had a stiff and then they don't pay you. Well, but that's another thing about Primus is we always, I, I watched friends of mine go and make their first record and they sign with some big deal somewhere and they make their first record and they spend $300,000 making this record and they pay the, the producer all this money and they sell like maybe 80,000 copies. Well, because we didn't spend a shitload of money, 80,000 copies is profit. That's, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a profitable venture. When you spend $300,000 on a record plus, and you only sell 80,000 copies, people get in the in the room and start talking about, well, this is, you know, the business heads get together and go, this is not, this doesn't make, doesn't make good business sense. And away they go. And then they owe the record company all that money all this time. I was, I was always very careful about spending record company money because when all is said and done, it's your money. That's your money you're spending. So we were always very frugal. And when it came time to making videos, we would come up with these all these concepts for videos and I'd say, okay, we want to do this video. Here's the budget. It's going to cost X amount of dollars. And they would say, okay, that's a great idea for a video, but you're Primus. We're going to give you half of X. And I would say, okay, <laughs> I'm going to take that half of X and make the best version of that I can. And I keep telling my son this as a filmmaker. I'm like, look, look at how many popsicle sticks you have on the table and try and make the Golden Gate Bridge out of it. You know, don't, you know, use the resources that are available to you to make the best thing you possibly can. I think it makes you, I, I think it, it, it's, it, it makes you more, you have to be more resourceful on a creative level. And oftentimes it, I think it makes a better product because you have to kind of 
manipulate things. So Okay, you talked about uh, the money putting your kids through college. So how's it been financially for you? I mean, I'm not complaining, <laughs> but... But you know, if I'd have got the Metallica gig, I would have, a, <laughs> I would have a bigger house. I think. <laughs> well, let's say you stopped working right now. You got enough money to get to the end. Ah, uh, I tell my kids this all the time. I'm like, look, uh, when I go, there's going to be no money, but you're going to have a hell of a yard sale because <laughs> because I'm not real. I I like to spend. When I was a kid. One of my heroes was Evil Knievel. And uh, I remember him saying one time, and this was back in the day, he said, you know, I've made $2 million in my career. And I, I might be paraphrasing. He may have said a different number, but it, 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 you'll get the gist. He's like, I've made $2 million in my career and I've spent four. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God. And so. Well, what are you spending on? I got two tour buses. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I don't buy stupid shit. I mean, we'd have, you know, we have our tasting room. We have our, you know, we have our house here. We just, but you know, I'm in Primus. It's like I said, it's, it's, we make, we make a comfortable living, but it's these, these records that you we make, don't fly around in jets. Let me put it to you that way. Okay. These records that you make and you license, are they break even propositions or red or black? No, they make, they make money, but it's, you know, it's not like the money that, we all used to make. And I, I think I can, I'm speaking for everybody on that. <laughs> right. Know? Remember when selling a million records, it's like, oh, well, these guys sold 12 million. Now you sell a hundred thousand records. It's a big deal. You know? Okay. You talk about the videos, you know, you're a bass player, you're a member of a band. Do you just say, well, let me give a shot at that. Or you say, wow, I've always wanted to do this. Same thing with writing a book. No, my, I say this quite often too, is my heroes, people expect me to, who are your heroes? They expect me to say, and I do say guys like Getty Lee and whatnot, but my superheroes are guys like, you know, Frank Capra and Aaliyah Kazan and um, Stanley Kubrick and the Coen brothers and Terry Gilliam. I, these are people, these are the guys that really have shaped me as far as a creative person. So when it when the notion of making videos came along, I was I was ready to go. I was diving in. And even the same with my novel. It's, I wrote the novel because I had written it as a screenplay, and we tried to make it into a film over and over and over again. And I finally just got to the point where, you know, the thing about filmmaking is it's much more of a collaborative process, especially when people start throwing money in there. They're going to have an opinion, and you got to change stuff around and more compromising going on. Um so we had had so many people come on and off of this project that I was changing things continuously. And I finally, I was like, look, screw this. I'm going to write this script into novel form because then at least the story that I originally wanted to tell exists somewhere before it gets convoluted by a bunch of opinions of people with money. Not that those are bad opinions, but it does change, change the uh, original narrative, I think. So I wrote the novel. So that's how I fell into that. So if you wrote a novel, do you read novels? Uh, occasionally. <laughs> I go through periods of, of, of reading a lot and then periods of reading nothing. I tend to read a lot of, uh, of, of books about where to either place the microphone 
or how the Jake Brake system works on a uh, on a 8V92 Detroit diesel, or now that I just recently, literally within the last month, finally got my pilot's license, I'm reading a lot about aviation. Okay, you mentioned, you know, all these film directors. So film directors and narrative, those are your heroes more than musicians? In a lot of ways. Um, I definitely watch more film than I listen to music. So right now, are you watching contemporary film? I watched The Whale the other night. I thought it was spectacular. I was really blown away by that film. And but, how about? But about, I tend, yeah. I tend to, I, t- I, you know, I tend to be the guy that has TCM on all the time. Okay, how about watching streaming television? Some of it, I find some of it just takes over my life too much, so I, I avoid it until it's highly 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 recommended to me okay what's your favorite movie uh dr strange love and if you had to mention two movies that people are unaware of that they should see well if they haven't seen dr strange love they should see dr strange love and face in the crowd okay so at this late date you've got this whole career to people like me, you are in your own sphere. There's less Claypool. There's nobody quite like you. Now, and you're doing a lot of collaborative stuff. To what degree does your, you know, inbox ding or your phone ring with people saying, hey, Les, I want you to come work on my thing? Uh, I mean, it happens fairly regularly. And I have a hard time. I have a pretty full dance card <laughs> or you know i use the metaphor of 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 pots on the stove there's a lot of pots on my stove um it just depends on which one i pull to the front burner i mean currently i'm in the middle of two records one me and me and sean lennon are working on another delirium record right now and then billy strings and i started a record a couple months back a few months back actually um so okay how did you meet sean lennon and make or end up making a record with him. Well, Sean Sean's band, Ghost of a Sabertooth Tiger, opened for uh, Primus on a tour. And uh, funny thing was, him and my son really hit it off right off the bat because they're both like these kind of Poindexter science nerds, and they were just like yammering away about the cosmos and f- physics. But um, uh, but we all kind of hit it off. And Charlotte, his 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 uh, his his uh, partner, uh, we all we just all hit it off. So one day, him and I just kind of started jamming. I always keep my dobro bass around. We just started jamming on acoustic guitars, and we ended up in the back of the bus just just jamming. And it, there was some really interesting things coming out. And um, so I just said, "Hey, why don't you come on out to Rancho? Let's 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 record some stuff." It seems like we got it was it was just this. There was some interest. It, there was instant chemistry. Um, and it, and he wasn't playing things that I ex- that I was expecting. He was he's pretty angular and um, has an interesting approach to to his instrument. And we got together and recorded our first album, which became the Delirium, uh, Claypool Lennon Delirium, uh, Monolithophobos. And what about Billy Strings? Well, so Billy is an interesting. <laughs> it's interesting because. We, as Delirium, me and Sean, 
we were playing a festival up in, um, um, was, I think it was up in Tahoe a few years back. And my wife comes to me and says, hey, look at this set list. And it was this set list. And the first song of the set list started with L. The second song of the set list started with E. Third song started with S. Fourth song started with C. It spelled out my name in the first letters of each song. And I was like, who the hell is this? Oh, it's Billy Strings. So I had met Billy and his band. I, I didn't really remember it at the time. But then he kept kind of sending me stuff on on my Instagram, commenting mainly on fishing pictures because he's a big fisherman. And we just kind of hit it off. And we went, we went, we went fishing and we started just kind of jamming together. And we thought, let's, let's record some stuff and see what happens. So we've been making a record. And the, the notion is that it's all songs about fishing. Okay. Is it kind of a unique project? Like, I mean, he's on quite an ascension. Uh, or is it like, well, this would be the next step to reach more people, or is it like, well, this sounds interesting? This is just a couple guys that like to fish, <laughs> getting together and twanging away. You know, we we're just—it's very, very casual, and um, it—I I have a thing called the duo de twang, which is myself and an old buddy of mine from high school, where we we basically do these kind of twang versions of Primus songs and some of my songs and other people's songs. And it's, it's, it, it, I call it my vacation band because we sit on stage and, and I stomp on this box for a drummer, kind of like stomping Tom, Tom Connors because I'm a big stomping Tom Connor fan. And, um, and we just drink <laughs> and tell jokes and play these songs in bars. It was fun. So I just thought, oh, this would be an extension of that with Billy. Um, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of preconceived notion to it except for, hey, let's write songs about fishing because we're both into fishing. Okay. You talked about the cupcake and how big a part of the cupcake is now touring. Do you like going on the road? Uh, I do, but it's like anything else. If you're on the road for a long time, you're dying to get home. But um, my wife said years ago, because she was like super mom. She was class mom for like eight years in a row or something. Her whole world was the kids. And she said, hey, when the kids move out, I'm just letting you know right now I'm coming on the road with you. And I said, okay. And that's when we bought our first tour bus. And I drive the tour bus. I have a driver for after shows, but on days off, we take the tour bus and we go stay in campgrounds and whatnot. And so it's it's really fun for us. We're like this couple that cruises around and we go do shows. And then on days off, we go stay in campgrounds. And I have all my fishing gear with me and a bicycle and we're just, it's, it's, it's fun for us to, to cruise around the country together. Well, around the world now, cause she goes everywhere with me. Okay. So how many dates a year do you tend to play? I know we had COVID, but generally. Um, I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing about three months solid this year. I'm doing two months and then a, then a couple months off and then a month. So about three months this year, summer and fall. So where have you been in the bus that the average person hasn't been? And you say, wow, you got to go there. I mean, I don't know if it's any different than where a lot of other musicians go, but that was one thing that I missed is in the early days when we had the motor home, which we called the odor home, uh, we would drive it. We'd drive from here to there and, and, and go to the gig and then, Next day, you're driving across country, and I saw the country. And then I spent decades doing my show, getting in the back of the bus, watching a movie, drinking or smoking or whatever the hell, falling asleep, waking up at five in the morning, shambling out, getting into my hotel, 
sleeping then getting up and going hey anybody know where the starbucks is oh anybody want to get lunch oh and then you get back get, get in a car and go to the gig do the show get back in the bus you don't see anything you see the inside of the bus and you see a hotel room and you see lots of coffee shops starbucks so now that we have our own bus and i'm driving it a lot i'm seeing the country we're both seeing amazing things in the country this last tour last year my driver got covid and i had to do all the driving all through canada and it was spectacular it was unbelievable it was a little stressful because i we'd do the show and i'd have to hop in the bus and drive as far as i could and then we'd pull over and sleep and then get up and drive the rest of the way to the gig but like driving from i think it was well driving through the canadian rockies into vancouver just this one day we saw like six caribou we saw a bear we saw a couple moose my wife saw a beaver hanging out on this big old dam. It was it was spectacular. It's unbelievable. How hard is it to drive a bus? It's not hard. I I love it. I enjoy it. I have my Class B uh, license now, so I'm able to drive this thing. But um, it's not terribly hard. It's like it's anything else. You just get used to it. And then what's up with the whole pilot's license thing? And do you plan to get a plane? I would say. I just go back to the bus. Parking the bus is the hard, hardest. Well, as I was going to say, right, right. <laughs> driving, it's easy. Parking. Okay. Is- that begs the question. Have you ever hit anything with the bus parking or something? No, I'm going to knock on some wood. I've not. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I'm, not, I'm sure my wife is listening. So the first, our very first trip out, we are coming. Uh, um, I think we're, we're, co- we're coming into just outside of Utah. We're coming. We just come over this r- area where it's just beautiful views. And I see this this uh, this rest stop at the last second. I was like, oh, I was swinging in there. And I swung in and I didn't realize how tight it was. And I'm backing up and all of a sudden, this tree branch comes right through the side window and it literally hits me in the back of the head. So that was, <laughs> that was my first and so far only crunch in the bus. What does Primus mean in the rest of the world outside of the States? Um. It depends on where you go. You know, there's certain places where we're more popular than others. Um, we tend to not, we don't go to Europe that much, never really have. So we're not as popular in Europe as we are here. But in certain places, we're a little more than, uh, we've always done pretty well in Australia. We do pretty well in South America. Um, but we're the biggest in the States. Okay, in the old days, pre-internet, if you're on a major label, which you were, you're on MTV, everybody knows your name. Whereas today, you could be number one on Spotify, most people have never even heard your music. So, does that frustrate you? Do you want to have more people exposed to what you're doing? I don't know if it frustrates me as much as it frustrates my daughter. (laughs) I don't really pay attention, you know, it's like, if I can go do some shows and people show up and I can, you know, make my living and do my stuff, that's wonderful. If more people show up, that's wonderful. But I don't pay attention to how many Spotify plays we have or any of that stuff. But my daughter did tell me when she was in high school, she's like, you need to get on social media because all your fans are getting old and they're going to die. And then I'm not going to have any legacy. There's going to be nobody. You need to get, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh, easy, easy. So I have an Instagram account now, but I don't want the hell to do with it. I post fishing pictures on it once in a while. That's that's really all I do. Okay, and you talk about making these records. You have a studio in the house? Yeah, we've been recording our records here at, 
it's Rancho Relaxo since 1994. So we've done a lot of records here. What have you got in the studio? Uh, I have an old vintage API console, a 2488. Um, I have a, 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 a two-inch 16-track tape machine, but I just don't use it anymore. I have a I have an ATR machine, half-inch, just don't use it anymore. You know, the digital stuff is just, it's so much more convenient, and I AB'd with friends, and nobody could really tell the difference, so it was like, eh, all right. But, um, you know, obviously Pro Tools. So, lots Are of- you a gearhead with a whole, you know, closet full of microphones, or you basically have the basics that people bring in what they want? No, I got a bunch of old stuff vintage stuff and some newer contemporary stuff that's i i go through periods of gear heading and and not um i uh i do love my api that thing is is spectacular it's the best sounding console i've ever even heard um so i geek out on that sort of thing but i go through periods of geeking and then going off and geeking on something else you know okay since you're so good with cars whatever Every studio needs a tech. Do you do your own tech or do you call somebody? Uh, I have a fellow by the name of Krieg who is amazing, but I, I do as much as I can because I did used to be a fledgling bench tech. So I do as much as I can, but he's the guy that, that keeps, 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 the, keeps the clock ticking. And then do you play the bass every day or how often? Uh, then again, it's, I go through periods where I'm playing a lot. Like right now I'm playing a lot because I just got a, a new, I got a new six string and I'm fiddling around with some, some new amps. But uh, uh, then there's other times when I won't play for weeks. And certainly a P bass is a standard. What, what's your standard amp? <sighs> standard amp. I don't even know if I have a standard amp. I, I avoided for decades going to the giant SVT head that weighs 7,000 pounds and, you know, the hernia head. And now I have three of them. <laughs> I finally succumbed, 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 succumbed. Um, but because uh, I found that I had endorsements with different companies and whatnot, even with, with uh, Ampeg for a long time. And I'd go to Chile or somewhere and they'd, put one of these vintage SVT heads up for me to rent and it always sounded amazing. And, and I thought, Jesus Christ, I got to just, I find, and so I finally broke down, I bought one and then I bought another one and then I bought it and they all sound different and I have to redo the tubes every now and again. And it's just, but they're amazing. You get one that sounds good and it's truly incredible sounding. Okay, and you talk about watching TCM being a big movie addict. To what degree do you pay attention to the news? I mean, I read my news every day. Uh, I have my feeds, so actually often multiple times a day. Um, So I feel like I'm fairly in tune. But uh, I'm a big fan of people that excel at what they do, and I'm a big fan of... of, um, consulting professionals so when i have an issue with like say a medical issue or even friends that have medical issues i have a friend of mine that graduated from columbia med he's been a pediatric doc for decades now in in oakland and 
I call him get it after I talk to my doc. If I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying or, or I talk to him. If, if I, if I don't get the information from him, I talk to a buddy of mine who's a brain surgeon in Manhattan and that's where I get my information. I don't go on to blogs and decide that the vaccination is not good for me because some guy in some cabin somewhere said it adversely affect his earlobes or whatever. I, I tend to, to rely on professionals. So it's the same a lot of times with, with, with elements of the news that I may be intrigued by or concerned with. I have friends that like our manager, he's a huge sports guy. He knows everything about every, every draft pick, every team. That's his thing. It's not my thing. I have a friend who's like that with politics, any little angle and dangle. He knows all what's happening. And so I like going to lunch with him once in a while and hearing his perspective. Stuart Copeland's very good at that too. And Stuart, he likes to be a contrarian. So he likes to take opposing viewpoints just to get the thing steamed up. So um, when all is said and done, I play the bass. And that's what, you know, if you want to know about the bass, I'm a pretty good resource to, 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 to talk to you about. I don't know everything, but I know enough to kind of move you along. And I tend to be that way with, with how I, how I uh, filter information. That makes Are you sense. optimistic or pessimistic about the direction of the country? Um, I think as I'm getting older, I tend to be more of a curmudgeon, but I try not to be. And I'm very fortunate that my wife is one of the most positive humans, if not the most positive human I've ever met in my entire life. So it helps keep me balanced. But um, I remember back in the days of the 80s living in Berkeley and we were all anti-apartheid and I'm not buying shell gas and this and that and the next thing. But it was all very superficial. We were just kind of, we were bouncing, we were uh, paraphrasing things that other people that were more knowledgeable than us that were cool in our scene were, were saying. Now that I'm older, I'm a little more aware. It's It tends to, and I see it with a lot of my friends too, it tends to make you a little more pessimistic and curmudgeon-y. So, I don't know if I answered your question. Well, no, I think that's uh, good enough. So, moving forward, you're doing this frog tour. Your manager suggested it. What's coming down the pike? Do you just wake up every day with a new idea, or do you have like a three-year plan? What might we expect from Les Claypool? Well, I just spent the last... I'd say three or four months uh, intensely studying, studying harder than I've ever studied in my entire existence on the planet to get my pilot's license. So I'm kind of coming out of that because I just got my license a couple weeks ago and now I'm, <laughs> I can actually start living my life again. Um, so gearing up for the Sprague Brigade tour, we're doing a benefit in a couple weeks uh, at Primus with the, uh, couple buddies from tool and and queens of the stone age and and a comic buddy of ours for a, a friend of ours who's who was battling cancer um but gearing up for the frog brigade thing i'm learning a bunch of songs i got to relearn all that pink floyd animal stuff because we're going to do that in its entirety so i'm gearing up for that and gearing up for for the summer run and then eventually i'm going to get back in the studio with sean and finish up this delirium record and eventually get with billy and finish the Thing with Billy Strings. What's this whole pilots thing about? So in the early 90s, I was living in Berkeley and my uncle, who's retired, now retired auto mechanic, he had his own plane. He had a Bonanza. 
And he took us up and I was like, ah, this is really cool. And I started taking lessons from his buddy. And then we moved up to the country and I just never finished. So all these years have gone by, the kids have moved out and I thought, well, shit, I should finish this thing. So I, I dove in head first and, and really, really just, cause I knew I had to do it between projects cause it takes so much of my mental capacity that I knew I couldn't, I couldn't be working on creative output and all this input, data input at the same time. It just wouldn't have worked. So I just put everything on hold and, and I got my license. Um, it took me from the beginning of December till a couple weeks ago. You got your license. You're going to get a plane? Uh, I have a plane with a friend. What kind of plane? It's a Cirrus SR20. Okay, so it comes with a parachute, theoretically. comes with a parachute, thank God. <laughs> Assuming, you know, a lot of people don't pull it because it tends up really damaging the plane. What about instrument rating? Uh, I guess I'm going to go for that next. Okay, you're a very forthright, humorous person, but you talk about being into movies, etc. Are you always this kind of upbeat? Or do you go into dark areas? Do you get depressed? I mean, am I just seeing one side of less or is this who you are 24-7? Oh, no, 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 no. I, it's, it's funny because, like I said, my wife is literally, she's the most positive person I've ever met. She wakes up in the morning. She gives you a big smile. You know, I wake up in the morning. Sometimes I have a big smile. Sometimes I'm like, Ugh. and our son is very much like her. He's <laughs> wakes up whistling and. But our daughter's more like me, you know, peaks and valleys. So you get me, you get less on a peak and I'm a happy clam, but you get me on a valley, not such a happy clam. And it's funny because uh, I don't usually do sugar and I don't usually do desserts because my buddy Slavic, who's Polish, says, God damn it, Klippel, don't order no goddamn dessert, man. You're going to turn into an asshole in 20 minutes because for 20 minutes, I'm like, woohoo, happy guy on sugar. And then... 20 minutes later, I'm like, I want to get out of here. Uh, you know, so I, I, I have my peaks and valleys. Well, how low do the valleys get? They can get pretty low, but, you know, that's why I'm happy I have my wife here. She's always lets me know when I'm feeling down or, you know, things are looking less than, than cheery. She lets me know that I've got it pretty good. And I do. I have it spectacularly good. Okay. So you're living your life now. Any dreams beyond this? Anything you want to accomplish? Talking about your daughter talked about legacy. You said that's not important. Or you just say, I'm just going to merrily go along and that's my life. Well, it's become very important to me recently to try and do the South of the Pump House film for a few different reasons. One, I think it's very relevant right now. It's super very intense uh, social commentary, a lot of racism, a lot, lot of uh, misogynistic elements in it. It's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a hotbed for sure. But also, my buddy Mark Core, who I was, who I was, um, uh, he's a director who I was going to do this project with many years ago. He, he was the, one of the hotshot video directors in his day, and um, he, he, his first daughter was born with. Uh, with an affliction and since then he's he's that's what he that's been his life is taking care of her 
And because of that, he kind of fell out of, you know, he was with Spike Jones and all those guys. He was one of those guys and he should have been gone on to be a great filmmaker. And he just had, he just kind of fell out of it to, to take care of his family. And he's at a point now where, I, where he can, he can do this thing. So it's really important to me that we try and get this project going again so that, so that a, I can fulfill one of my dreams, but B, because I think the world needs to see what Mark Core can do, because he's really one of the most talented people I know. Well, Les, not only are you unique in your playing, you're unique in your identity, your sense of humor, you're obviously very intelligent. It's been great talking to you. I want to thank you for taking the time for me and my audience. Yeah, well, you're, you're a very kind man, and, and uh, it was a great conversation. I, I always enjoy a good conversation. Okay, till next time, this is Bob Lefsex. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 4-14-24 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended silver unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.